Salman Adaraj, great to have you joining us. Salman, we've already had a session on stage together, so we've warmed up, but now we've got it easier because we can do audio and we can edit out all the, the messy bits. So so welcome. Adaraj, how about you? We haven't been on stage together, but have you? what's your experience like of, of recording podcasts and, uh, and video? I used to volunteer for the Institute of Actuaries, and I, I uh, did interview different practitioners for about three podcasts. So that, that's my sort of experience of podcasting, I'd say. A very short career. Well, I also, I've also believe you've actually been on television as well. Not proper TV, but I'd say it's AM Best TV. So a YouTube-type channel that AM Best has. Look, we'll take it. I mean, any actuary that's willing to be out there uh, on any kind of video is, is I'm sure is going to be great company. Well, look, I'm really looking forward to, to talking to the two of you about ESG and sustainability. Before we kick off, a little bit of background to both organizations. So at Moody's, you're a globally integrated risk assessment firm. You've got a mission to provide insights and standards to a range of industries, including, of course, insurance. Moody's has got over 14,000 employees, I saw, across 40 different countries. And you acquired catastrophe modeling company RMS in 2021, which I happen to know quite well. Uh, Salman, you are Senior Director of Insurance and practice lead. And Adaraj Metro, you're group head of sustainability at Canopius. Now, Canopius has got a head office in London, but is writing global specialty insurance business around the world. Uh, and you also happen to be a client of Moody's. Well, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Good morning, good evening, Matthew Grant here. Well, I don't think it's stopped raining here in London since we released our last podcast. Hopefully it's better wherever you are. But we are back on the broad topic of climate and sustainability this week. Now, we've been writing and talking about how insurers are being required to measure their exposures and their clients' exposure to climate and carbon through underwriting, regulation, financial reporting, and more. So it was fascinating this week to read the report from Moody's titled State of the Market 2023 incorporating ESG into PNC underwriting, and then discuss the implications with Salman Siddiqui from Moody's and Adhiraj Matra from Insurers Canopius, along with some real-life examples of how Canopius is addressing the issues around sustainability and ESG. Now, if you want to read the report, there is a link in the episode notes, or you can find it on the Moody's website. Well, a quick plug for us here at Instec. We're working with both these companies, helping them and hundreds of others in our collaboration of the Incurious. www.instec.co for more information on how you too can get help from us or contact me, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn. Okay, on with the show. Salman, we're going to be talking about your survey, which is, I believe, in its second iteration, State of the Market in 2023, incorporating ESG into PNC underwriting. I guess before we start, it's helpful just to define what ESG means because people today have got lots of different definitions. Sometimes we're referring to sustainability. So just to kick things off, can you just talk a little bit about how you would define ESG for the purposes of your report? Sure. So at Moody's, we look at the three pillars of ESG, environment, social, and governance. And for us, the most important thing really is this concept of double materiality, which is not just about the impact or the financial impact of ESG factors on a company, but also the impact a company is having on ESG factors. So as an example, what impact are the company's products having on society? Does it have responsible customer relations, for example? So those sort of things that we look at from the outside in, as well as the inside out, is an important part of our ESG approach. And this term sustainability, 
Do you think of that distinctive from ESG now, or do you as other people now seem to be using it as a, a synonym for, for ESG? We think sustainability is a much wider topic, I and mean, ESG is a part of it. Okay, and Adarash, for you, what, what's the, your personal view or the Canopius view about ESG versus or and sustainability? As you would probably note in our annual report uh, from 2022, we did use the term ESG, and I think, this is my personal view, ESG as a term was really important in raising awareness when people were still figuring out what it really means. But I think given that the sort of industry is at a fairly mature stage, I think it's probably time to move away from the term ESG and at least as a business we have been using sustainability as a concept a lot more and I I personally think it it is a broader con- concept compared to ESG and it kind of talks about the long-term viability of a company of the business and means a lot more to a company and I think when you talk about E, S, and G, there are different sort of factors and sub-factors that can come under that sort of umbrella. And those factors can be different for different companies, depending on the kind of business they write, the sectors they're in. And it can always lead to misinterpretation. And that's where we think that sustainability is a a better representation of the work that we've been doing across the business. Great. Well, and your title, therefore, is the wider ranging group head of sustainability. But of course, today, the title of the report is ESG. And we were talking about ESG underwriting portfolio management. Salman, as it's a Moody's report, can you define what you or how you would define ESG underwriting portfolio management? Yeah, so at Moody's, we see this as a four-stage process. And stage one is about looking at the post-buying portfolio. Stage two is about engagement with insurers and brokers. Stage three is about the pre-bind stage and marginal impact analysis. And the final stage, and this is much further down the line, is pricing and risk selection. Where we see most of the insurance market at the moment is at the post-bind stage, so understanding the portfolio as it stands today. I'm trying to build a heat map, trying to understand where the problem areas are, and socializing that within the organization to get buy-in and have people become more conversant uh, with this topic. Great. So let me just play that back to you to make sure we've got those locked in for anybody listening. So the, the first of all is understanding the post-buying portfolio. So that's kind of where am I on my portfolio? Secondly, you are helping insurance companies engage directly with insurers and brokers. And we can probably hear a little bit from Adiraj about how that works in practice. And then thirdly is actually the decision that gets made before somebody writes, which is pre-bind. And then as that starts to link into both pricing and selection. If I, if I summarize those four categories correctly. Good. You're nodding your head. So I guess I got that one right. And then Adiraj, just from a personal perspective or your Canopus perspective, how are you working either specifically with Moody's or just more broadly in those areas? We've been working with Moody's for the last one year in really sort of understanding the data and validating the data. Pre-post-buying portfolio management is important because that allows you to set the strategy and then the next steps are important in kind of implementing that strategy. So if you know where you are now, then you can think where you want to be, decide where you want to be, and then kind of structure your portfolio over the next few years. So that's why it's important. However, given the data challenges, we are a few steps away from it. I can give examples later. On the whereas the client engagement piece is quite important because 
We have a mix of clients uh, where we lead the risk. So some are quite advanced in their journey. Some, because of various limitations, resource, time, money, etc., are lagging a bit. And that's where we can kind of share some good market practice with them. And that's where sector benchmarks are quite important in those discussions. Again, given the data challenges, the pre-bind and pricing, we are probably several steps away from that particular approach. Excellent. Thanks. We'll come back and dig into those a bit more. I just want to come back to the report. So, Salman, you interviewed 36 senior executives across underwriting and portfolio management. What have you found that's been changing in people's views since you last did the survey? The biggest headline for us is that insurers are doubling down on ESG. We've seen a doubling of the number of companies that have already integrated ESG factors into their process. We're also seeing increases in the number of companies that want to start integrating ESG into their processes. Other things that came out that were really interesting for us were in terms of timelines. We saw that there was also a bit of a doubling in the number of companies that want to do something within the next six months. So 43%, for example, said they want to do something within the next six months, up from 22% last year. And we reflects the urgency on this topic and I think it's important to not just look at the numbers. We have to look at the context behind some of these numbers where this comes in the backdrop of a lot of geopolitical turmoil. Uh, there's increased macroeconomic and recessionary pressures. And we have to remember the fact that there's no real regulation around this yet. There's no real requirement from either the regulators or from governments or disclosure requirements. So despite all that, we're still seeing a significant um, speed of change here. You know, Moody's and I started looking at this topic about two years ago, and no one was really talking about this, whether in Europe or anywhere else. And now, if you look at most European insurers, it's on everyone's agenda. It's on everyone's priority list. And I personally haven't worked in insurance for quite a bit of time. I've never seen a topic move at this space. You know, if I look at Solvency 2, IFRS 17, the emergence of the ILS market, for example, uh, this topic has probably moved faster than any other topic I've seen in the last, say, 20 years or so. I picked up on some of those reading it. The three that stood out for me, the main findings in your report, were the reasons people are doing this is risk management, competitive advantage, and, and regulation. And number one of those was risk management. And it was your point about the moment the regu- there is regulation, but it's it's got a long way to go and be more prescriptive, I think, in many areas. It's intriguing to see that people are actually taking this initiative themselves. Can you just talk a bit about why you, you found that risk management was most important for people? So I think from a qualitative perspective, again, looking beyond the numbers, having spoken to a lot of insurers here in Europe and, and across the world, they're seeing ESG as core risk to their organization. There's this topic that climate risk is business risk. ESG risk is also business risk. So looking at this from a risk perspective doesn't come as a surprise to us. I think for me, though, what was more interesting was the number of companies that were identifying ESG as having some sort of potential competitive advantage. That number was 40% this year. But I think it was 30% last year. So that's, an, that's that number is on an increase. And we will do the same survey next year. I'm pretty confident that we're going to see that number at 50%. So more and more companies are seeing ESG not just as a downside risk issue or something to do with reputation, but they're seeing upside potential from this as well. And some of the conversations we've had with insurers um, about what this upside could look like includes things like developing new products or insuring new sectors. 
Or what I found also quite interesting was access to cheaper capital. Those companies that have good or are doing a lot in ESG and, and sustainability will attract cheaper capital to their balance sheets. Yeah, they're really interesting. And ultimately, that makes it a, a very compelling argument of the, for a company at a strategic level if it's going right back to the kind of commercial heart. Adraj, how, how does that compare to your own experience, what you've been seeing in Canopus? Rather than risk management, I'll talk about risk assessment. So an insurer, when underwriting a risk, would do sufficient analysis and investigation to understand whether that risk is worth writing whether it's a good risk or a bad risk, and, and price that risk accordingly. That is where sort of I'm opposed to the word ESG. So to give you an example, if let's say you're providing cyber cover, as part of your BAU underwriting, the risk assessment would include whether a company has had data breaches. Now, again, that's where sort of uh, the underwriters or the risk management team would, risk managers would look at the risks and understand if a company is exposed to that. A Moody's type platform or universe can be useful is achieving that operational efficiency. At Canopius, we're still a few steps away from that. But once you start understand the data, and that's a point that Salman made, that you start trusting the data, then you can perhaps use it for positive risk selection and spend a bit less time in doing a deep dive where you know the risk is certain aspects of that risk is in a good state. And that's where a platform like this can help you achieve that operational efficiency. That's really helpful. And actually, it, it links into one of the other things I came across in, in the report, Salman, which was that 60% of your respondents said that data was a challenge. ESG data, we're just going to keep calling it ESG for now because it's the title of the report, particularly for private companies. Just can you talk a little bit more about that? It seems to link with what uh, Adiraj is saying in terms of you know, quality of data is really important. This is a, an important point, and Adiraj touched on this in terms of data quality. So more than half of the respondents to our survey, one of the biggest challenges they identified was there's a lack of ESG data, particularly in the SME and private space. Adiraj used the example of financial institutions and law firms, especially in that SME space, who don't publish a lot of ESG data. If you look at insurance portfolios, you know, 20% will be large public companies. The other 80% are SMEs and private companies, and, the, and they don't disclose a whole lot of ESG information. Now, if I compare that to the asset side of the balance sheet, for example, most PNC insurers or even life insurers are predominantly invested in large cap companies, right? There's a little bit of private exposure, but predominantly it's large cap companies. So this issue is quite unique to the needs of the underwriting side or the liability side of the balance sheet. And at Moody's, we use a proxy model to give uh, like a proxy ESG score and indicative ESG score on those SMEs and private companies. But that's only part of the answer. Right? That only goes so far. A lot of what we're talking about recently is how can we get more data? What's the process? And what role do intermediaries play in obtaining some of that data? I mean, another topic that has come up a lot is insurers saying, you know, we're struggling with having internal expertise on ESG. And that has been a bit of a challenge. Again, this is a new topic. There's no blueprint to this. So the level of expertise in the insurance market in ESG has been improving over the last, say, uh, 24 months or so. But the big thing that this expertise needs to answer is if a company has a good score or a poor score, so what? What, what do we do with that, right? And that only comes with experience. The more people get to grips with the data, the more people get conversant with the concept of ESG, the more people will be able to unlock the so what part of, the, of this journey. And Adraj, how, how does that borne out for you? So 
I'm guessing your role is partly the work you do directly, but I'm sure a lot of it is influencing your colleagues in underwriting and actuarial and across the whole range. That, that comment about it, the sort of lack of expertise, how are you finding you're getting on with that? In terms of expertise, underwriters really understand the lines of business. They are part of the risk they're underwriting. But around sustainability, there are a lot of acronyms. There are a lot of definitions. If you probably ask 10 people to define transition risk, you might get 10 different answers. We need to kind of have consistency in the definition. What we've been doing is kind of internal engagement. And so we've signed up to a third-party vendor to roll out training program for our colleagues sharing sessions that we've kind of hosted just to sort of make sure that our understanding is at a consistent basis i've talked about many different sort of challenges around the moody's data and platform but one definite advantage that came out of the sort of validation exercise that we carried out was kind of getting uh, 20 of our underwriting colleagues in the same room and really sharing kind of experiences that they observed in their own part of the business and that sort of collaboration was fantastic it benefited us in multiple kind of different ways one of the reasons we started working with moody's was the reason that they had a predictive model which i think it's not perfect it's there are many kind of gaps in it but it kind of gives you a baseline gives you a start and then you can kind of start augmenting other sources of information from other sources other parts of the business to really improve the sort of entire sort of universe of data that you're looking at really intriguing to hear about getting the underwriters together because it links back to some of what you're saying about you've got the information but what do you, do you do about it but Adraj, what's happening across the market? So whether it's in the London market or in Lloyd's or it could be globally to achieve like better training, you know, better consistency, are you seeing some groups emerge that get together or are you and your colleagues getting together to discuss things for the benefit of your customers and industry as a whole? Absolutely. We have a managing agency in the Lloyd's market and through at the LMA, we do engage with other managing agencies in the market. It's talking about different challenges we face without kind of disclosing anything that would breach any anti-competition law or anything. It's just discussing challenges that, that the business faces and what the market as a collective can do, which could be providing guidance to different people but I, th I think it's mainly the sort of collaboration discussion a sharing of ideas which can be quite useful this whole issue about consistency and standards of data is, is an issue across all of insurance all lines of business it, it's a particularly big problem here that also came across in your reports as well Simon. and was there a, a bit more in that that's worth commenting on about people's views about the need for more standardization I think it's an, a really interesting finding within the survey that says that more than three quarters of our respondents said they would benefit from a market standard around ESG. It's a subjective topic at the end of the day, and different people have different views on this topic. The broker speaks certain, looks at ESG a certain way, and the carrier looks at it a certain way, and the reinsurer looks at it a different way. Then you're talking across purposes at times. If you look at the parallel to NatCat and the way NatCat is talked about today, historically there was differences in the way people talked about NatCat. And today, and RMS pioneered a lot of this, was looking at NatCat in a consistent way and using things like PMLs, AALs, to talk about natural catastrophe risk and exposure management. We're trying to do something similar now on ESG. 
And like I said, the big area here is around SME and private companies. We need to get more data on them. Everyone agrees. The question is what data? What are the right-hand questions we should be asking? As an industry, we should agree on that. Brokers, carriers, and reinsurers. So across the value chain, there should be some sort of consistency in what information is being requested and trying to reduce the burden on the SME or on the insured as much as we can because uh, we don't want to make these questions onerous and you don't want to have 12 different carriers asking 12 different set of questions. You want to have a consistency in those questions and the, and the and insured only has to answer that once. So Moody's has initiated a working group across the value chain of insurance, that's brokers, carriers, and reinsurers, trying to figure out what's the right data standard on ESG so that we can coalesce. I don't think we need to agree on every single topic. I don't think the insurance industry, it doesn't have a good track record of agreeing on every single thing, but they can at least start coalescing around what an agreed approach should be for ESG data that should be collected for SMEs. And if I can add some personal experience, in the the last 12 months, I think I've completed about 10 different questionnaires from different stakeholders. So investors to reinsurers to insureds and a very wide horizon of stakeholders. Uh, Some had about 10 questions and some had about 160 different questions. We tried to create a database of kind of all the questions so that it would kind of help us answer those surveys in the future. But we struggled to (laughs) find a core set of questions. And and that points to the challenge that Salman was talking about, the lack of standardization. If we had even 20 common questions, that would make our life a lot easier. Yeah, you'll be very patient if you filled in 200 questions for one of your, uh, whoever was asking you to fill in that that survey. There's definitely a need to getting more consistency around how we're doing that and a question for you Adraj in terms of where you're looking for that data so what's the balance for you between where you would you'd look for data from the client and then where you would look for data from Moody's or it could be another organization we might go and find it externally because because clearly if you if you want to make decisions you can't wait until your client comes up with that information but but at the same time you also got to make sure you trust that information as well. Yes, we are using Moody's as the first port of call. Um, of course, reiterating the sort of uh, fact that there are data challenges, so we can't at this point of time use it for kind of business decisions. But having been a, a quasi regulator at Lloyd's, I'm I personally am always mindful of requesting for data before knowing what you're going to do with the data. To Salman's like previous point about not, it's not just numbers; it's what are you going to do with it. So until, as insurers, as a an industry, we have a clear kind of idea of what we're going to do with it. It is perhaps unfair to burden our insureds with even more data requests. And the other sort of challenge is in commercial insurance, you often get data from the brokers, and different brokers would have different kind of approach to data data collection so again so because of the lack of standardization we haven't sort of reached a position where we can instruct or provide guidance or expect certain types of data from our insureds which we would use as part of our portfolio management or portfolio view of risk or whatever i think we we're not there yet but hopefully through kind of market initiatives etc we can kind of 
get a fair idea of where we want to be. I mean, I really like your opening comment about don't ask for data until you know what you're going to do with it. Yeah, it certainly might help a lot of the back and forth that doesn't necessarily end up in being productive. So we've touched on some examples of where the two of you are working together, but are there any other case studies or stories that are worth sharing about how you've been learning from each other and collaborating? The first kind of four to six months of the Moody's Canopus relationship, we dived into the model and how the data was being collected, what each of the sort of 30 to 40 different factors that the Moody's kind of universe has, what do they mean? And how does that sort of affect the overall kind of ESG score? And then we found many kind of uh, interesting kind of problems. So uh, in some cases, we found the disclosure was driving the score. So smaller companies, although let's say you would intuitively expect them to have a higher score than some some other companies, they ended up with a lower score because they had not disclosed and they were quite small from a revenue perspective compared to the other ones. Or in some cases where different sectors, financial institutions, for example, who do not directly contribute to environmental degradation, they had lower ESG scores despite doing pretty well on the governance and social side because the weighting kind of looked at the E aspect as well. So I think those kind of things were very good to kind of inform how best to use the Moody's platform or the universe. And that kind of led to the Exposure IQ portfolio management tool that uh, Moody's launched this year. And we're continuing to kind of develop that with the Moody's team. And what we are doing is, like we do with RMS and CAT model, is to form our view of risk. So Moody's offers, let's say, 35, 38, 40 factors around ESG. But what are the relevant ones? And what is relevant for a director's and officer's line might be different to a property line. So what we are looking to do, looking to achieve, is to have that flexibility that is determined by the line of business and that then aggregates to a portfolio view. So I think one of the things that has been really good with Moody's is we often go into those meetings saying coming up with our kind of own wish list and so far I think all the sort of wish list has been granted. So from a portfolio management perspective it it has kind of gone pretty well. Well done, Salman. It's given that it's seasonal. You're basically delivering all the gifts for uh, for Canopius. But anything else you want to add on to that? It is a journey, right? Not everyone has all the answers. And for, for us, the most important thing is to not to build anything in a vacuum. So we worked with Canopius. We worked with companies like Chaucer as well to try and understand exactly what our clients need and try to build that into it. One of the things we know that the needs of the liability side of the balance sheet are very different to the needs of the asset side of the balance sheet. And we've been very cautious about not, you know, forcing or pigeonholing kind of these views from asset management onto the liability side of the balance sheet. So it's it's quite a collaborative approach that we have with companies like Chuck Canopius. And it's been great hearing what Chaucer are doing. Any other companies that you can talk about publicly that you're working with? Yeah, obviously Chaucer is one of the companies we talk about a lot, similar to what Adiraj said with Canopis on the own view of risk. So this is what we've been working with Chaucer as well. They've also got this approach where they want to take our data and kind of create their own balanced scorecard, which you know adheres to their um, sensitivities and their risk appetites. The other one to mention, and I think it's an important one to mention, is our collaborative project with Lloyd's of London as a market 
So you would have seen recently, Moody's has partnered up with Lloyd's to support Lloyd's on its uh, transition or to, to a net zero and to ensure that transition. So we'll be working with Lloyd's to figure out how do we baseline their portfolio for carbon and understand what the carbon intensity of the underwriting portfolio at Lloyd's is, other parts of Lloyd's, so that's, that would include the investment side of the balance sheet as well. Then trying to think about how do we get to a net zero? Right, we've kind of baselined the carbon emissions. How do we get a glide path or some sort of pathway to a net zero? Trying to figure out what that actually looks like. So that's the sort of work we'll be doing with Lloyd's, and really speaks to the fact that more and more European insurers are looking at sustainability a bit more seriously. Yeah, oh, no, it's excellent. I mean, those collaborative projects will give you access, and I guess Lloyd's can use its organizational powers to bring together a lot of quite significant companies working with a lot of major corporations around the world. And then finally, just as we look ahead to 2024, question for both of you uh, is, what are people asking you and your own organizations or your clients or your partners generally that you would like to move into next year? I'll just summarize kind of our discussion first. Currently, we are being taking a very cautious approach. We are not ruling out um, any kind of requests to our underwriters or insureds until we know what we are going to do with the model, what we're going to do with the data. So so that's we really putting together an infrastructure that can help us over the next few years in in not only understanding better our portfolio from a particular or different lenses, but also respond to any regulatory requests um, in the future. And I think that is going to be part of 2024 priorities is kind of how do we use this view of risk? How do we use the PCAV scores that we've received from Moody's in kind of understanding our business a bit better, but also respond to those regulatory expectations and really understand? uh, Because I I think uh, one question that is that everyone is asking is what are the regulatory requirements so you've got csrd you've got issb you've got pra you've got lloyds you've got bma mas i can come up with 10 other acronyms and everyone is kind of expecting some kind of data over the next kind of five years so it's really kind of harmonizing those requests and making it work for our business and achieve that sort of operational efficiency without burdening either our underwriters or insureds. Wow, that's a lot of long acronyms in there. Well, if you're a regular listener or attend our events, you'll know that we normally don't let those acronyms slip past us. But I've got to confess, there were too many of them there to run through in one go. And most of them have got four letters or more. But to Adhiraj's point, there's a lot of guidance and recommendations for reporting on ESG, sustainability and carbon these days. So check out our reports at www.instec.co if you want to learn more about these. Salman, just finally for you, looking ahead, what else is on your personal wish list or Moody's or your clients? You know, we're hearing a lot about insurance companies trying to understand what the carbon intensity of their underwriting portfolio is, which is interesting because if you had asked me this 12 months ago, I would have said it, would, it is carbon. And then, and that was the reason behind that was the Net Zero Insurance Alliance, which was leading the charge on trying to get to some sort of consensus on carbon intensity and how we get to a net zero. That NZI association kind of collapsed, um, to use a, uh, a generous term. And we thought that would be the end of carbon and everyone would, you know, go back to where they were. But 
what's interesting is despite the what's happened with the NZIA, everyone has maintained their commitment to net zero, even outside of the NZIA. So that's the big likes of Allianz and AXA, et cetera, Munich Re, they've all maintained their commitment to net zero, which means they will still continue to look at things like um, carbon and carbon intensity and how they want to get to a net zero. So I think the next 12 months, especially looking across Europe, looking at tier ones as well as the tier two um, space, I think carbon will be the main talking point. I think a big part of carbon will be how do we baseline? And I think the PCAF standards give us the starting point for that. And the other part is, okay, we've got a baseline. How do we get to, to net zero? Like how, how do we actually transition this? And what work needs to be done to get to that? And more importantly, and this will be the hardest part, is how do we trade off against profits and GDP growth, right? At the end of the day, insurance companies are the raw material for insurance is capital, and that capital needs to be serviced, right? So I think the other thing that we're going to see a lot more over the next 12 to 24 months is starting that conversation around the trade-off, not the trade-off so, so much, but how do we balance profitability and premium growth with the wider sustainability um, factors that need to be taken into account. Thanks. Yeah, quite a lot in there. And I, I think in fairness to the then ZIA or the Net Zero Insurance Alliance, the reason it, it didn't continue is more to do with external political factors than, than intent. So uh, good to hear that it still exists in its intent, despite the organization itself probably not continuing. Listen, that's been a really fascinating discussion from both of you. Really good to be able to balance the survey with some very practical, real-life examples from Canopus. We'll put a link to the survey in the episode notes. But Salman, for anybody that wants to race off now and look at the survey and read it, and it's very, it's, it's a very easy read, I'd say. It's, it, it's, there's, there's not a lot of words and lots of very rich content in there. What's the easiest way to find that? The easiest way to find that is to go to moody's.com and look for our insights into ESG, and they will find it right there. Or at our LinkedIn post, or failing that, anyone's free to get in touch with me on um, email or LinkedIn. I'd be happy to guide them to our report. Excellent. Well, lots of choices. Uh, as I said, we'll put in the episode notes as well. So well worth a read. And I look forward to coming back next year and seeing how it's evolved. It's a very fast-moving space. But thanks to you both. Thank you very much, uh, Matthew. Thank you. Well, we'll be delighted to be working with Moody's and Canopius. And if you're wondering how to get your voice heard in the noise or want to find your business partners, then we can help. Examples of all that we're doing with companies around the world, insurers and technology companies, on our website, www.instec.co, or contact any of us, hello at instec.co. That's it. We're done. <laughs>